Hey guys, ready for some more mind blown? Uh, before we start, I just wanted to say uh, why the why the time between our last episode and this episode was so long. Um, I have no control over the upload time. It's entirely up to Ahan, and he had a very persistent family that was dead set on him joining in on any activities, which is understandable. And since school started, he's been getting used to the workload, uh, as have I, so sorry. Uh, but let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mind Blown Podcast. Yes, baby, hello, it's me, Ahan. Welcome back. Um, so you know how this show works, um, but let's dive right in. Earth and its moon are, from our perspectives, one of the most important planets ever in the solar system. Well, at least just for us. Not just that, but the Earth is the only planet that has exactly one moon. And to be honest, that moon is pretty influential. Um, alright. And a lot of scientists have brought up the fact that we wouldn't even be here without the moon's existence. It is truly a one-of-a-kind rock. As well as the size ratio, the moon is almost bigger than a quarter of the Earth. Obviously, we went to science class theorize where it came from. Rocks. Like the potato-shaped rocks that orbit Mars, they're just called captured asteroids, not moons. Scientists believe that the origin story of the moon is a real anime intro. A vast spray of debris oozed out of a fresh and hot straight out of the deep fry pan Earth after it had a huge smackdown with a Mars-shaped planet named Thea almost four and a half billion years ago. That debris all eventually gravitationally attracted and collided into one really big lump of rock and is now called the natural satellite of the Earth. Yup, the moon. Now that we have evidence of that birth, and I'm gonna have to be a bit forensic for this. Basically, isotopes of the noble gases, helium and neon, which are trapped in lunar meteorites recovered in Antarctica, match up with those found in solar wind without ever being exposed to it. This as well as another signature argon isotope concentration suggests that these gases were inherited from Earth as well when the two bodies were one very, very long ago. Studying the actual composition of the moon is a really complicated industry. We haven't done that since like, I don't know what, 1972? And collected samples are really, really quite scarce. The moon, however, does occasionally come back to us in the form of some meteorites that burn up in the air and come down to the surface, especially when something really large slams into the surface. The small lunar rocks are called lunaites, like lunites or lunaites, I don't know, it's one of them. And they have been recovered. There are several hundred that we know of at the moment that are found all around the world. These specific rocks formed when magma oozed upward from the interior of the moon and cooled almost instantly, covered by even more basalt, not from Minecraft by the way, and protected it from its ambient environment. Even cosmic rays and solar wind, when the basalt cooled, volcanic glass formed and crystallized, and it remained there until under the lunar surface. There it would land till a large enough impact would send lunar rocks flying in the trajectory towards Earth. Such an impact would have to be relatively large as it would go so far deep into the moon's surface that this rock hasn't seen light for eons. These two isotopes match with the same ones on Earth undisturbed since the planets have been forged. The, the researchers concluded that this formed during the formation of the planets when they were together. This discovery created a lot of new inspired studies on the study of noble gases and meteorites as well as what could be or what could be locked up in other lunar rocks, which were undetectable but are now beginning to come into reach. 
like hydrogen and halogen. Speaking of space, pretty soon NASA and other space agencies are now finally planning on sending asteroids beyond LEO, or low Earth orbit. For the first time in almost 50 years, unlike the Apollo era though, these missions will consist of astronauts spending pretty long amounts of time on the moon and traveling to and from Mars with just a few months of surface operations in between. This presents a ton of challenges though, such as the possibility that sick and injured people won't have licensed medics on board to perform life-saving injury. That's why Professor Shane Ferreter and his colleagues at the UNL and NIC have developed a miniaturized in vivo robotic assistant, also called as the Mira. In 2024, this portable miniature robotic assisted surgery platform will be flown all the way to the ISS for a test mission to evaluate its ability to perform medical procedures. In space, mind you, like no gravity robot arms, which will be pretty interesting, honestly. Ferreter is the David and Nancy Letterer Professor at, of Engineering at the University of Nebraska, which I'm pretty sure I just butchered that entire sentence, who studied robotics at MIT. As part of his studies, he worked with the NASA Kennedy Space Center, Goddard Space Flight Center, and Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the search of the engineering masterpiece that is NASA's MER, also known as Mars Exploration Rover Program. This consisted of making the entire Curiosity and Perseverance rovers, as well as their motion and planning, and inventing a process where the rover's sun detectors are used to determine its cardinal direction of travel in space. Compared to normal robotic surgical suits, Mira offers two advantages. First, its instruments can be compared, can be inserted through small incisions which can allow doctors to perform very minimally invasive operations, like abdominal surgery and colon resections. Secondly, it could allow for telemedicine, a place for surgeons to perform operations remotely and provide services to locations far from a medical facility. On Earth, this technology already allows doctors to assist people in faraway locations where services aren't immediately available. But the Mira can perform autonomously as well, meaning that it could be completely encoded in a robot to remember a specific surgery at a specific area and repeat the treatment without a surgeon even present. Anyway, I'ma hand the mic over to Nathan. Here you go, Nate. Thanks, Ahan. Hi, everybody. My name is Nathan, your friendly local rice cracker. If you know, you know. I don't have a sensible or comedic intro to start off with, so let's just begin. <clears throat> Did you know that one human- Sorry, one second. Hello? Hey, uh, scripting Nate, you there? Yeah, that's me. Alright, so- Wait, are you doing your first topic already? Yeah, that's- yeah, that's my first topic of the day. How, how do you know that? Oh, uh, never mind. It's just that we need to put a disclaimer for our listeners, or, uh... Okay, yeah, yeah, I can do that. It's, it's no problem. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you have a good day. You too. Alright, so I'm told I can't use this topic unless I put a disclaimer, and my first topic is... How do I say this? It's a bit of a risque topic, and ooh-la-la topic, if you will. And it might have the occasional spicy and suggestive joke to keep things lighthearted as is the nature of this podcast. If scriptwriting Nathan can think of any jokes for me, recording Nathan to say, that is. And for the sake of accuracy, I will be using proper terminology. If you're not comfortable with this kind of topic, you're free to skip ahead to the next one. I won't take it personally. I promise. We're all adults here. Let's get the show on the road. DNA is packed into nuclei very tightly. Like how tightly birdseed is packed when it's sent to my house. Seriously, I can't get the pack of birdseed out even with a murder weapon. But I digress. 
Each chromosome is a long, long molecule wrapped around proteins, and these proteins are called histones. Think of it like a bunch of thread on a spool as my mom picks out the right one to use on her sewing machine. However, the male reproductive cell, or gamete, known as the sperm, puts the packaging skills of even our chromosomes to shame. In fact, did you know that one sperm contains the equivalent of 37.5 megabytes of DNA in it? And an average ejaculation can transfer 15.8 terabytes of data. To give some perspective of how much that is, if your computer had that much space, you'd be able to download Among Us about 63,200 times over. Boofa boofa, that's a lot of information to swallow. A, a researcher named Hubert Scholl, Scholl? I butchered that name completely. Hubert Schorl said, and I quote, If DNA were to take up as much space as a watermelon, under normal circumstances, sperm cells would then only be as big as a tennis ball. End quote. In both humans and mice, two proteins, called protamines, use a process called hypercondensation, in which they replace the histones that chromosomes normally are wrapped around, in order to pack the DNA even more densely with every little bit of space being used up. Kind of like a game of Tetris. And how this happens is decently well understood, but Shorl and his team have dug even deeper into the vast world of hypercondensation and looked into what happens if you mess around with PRM2, one of the protamines involved in this process. During the process of creating a sperm cell, a part of the PRM2 protein is lost. This part is called the N-terminus, and the cleaving, or cutting off of the N-terminus, appears to be crucial to what makes sperm, well, sperm. Scholl and his team have written in their paper, quote, Proper PRM2 cleaving therefore seems to be crucial for successful reproduction, yet the function of the cleave PRM2 processing are unknown to date. End quote. In order to uncover what happens, the research team created mutant mice that didn't have any N-terminus on their PRM2 proteins to remove. And after closely inspecting and scrutinizing what the sperm produced, they, uh, they found that the PRM2 indubitably has to be cut down to size, as mice with uncleaved PRM2 proteins had DNA that completely fell apart. Lena Arevalo said, quote, The removal of transition proteins during hypercondensation is impaired. In addition, the condensation seems to proceed too quickly, causing the DNA strands to break, end quote. This kind of is expected. Le this kind of, as expected, uh, led to males who were infertile, but only when both couples, or alleles, of PRM2 were damaged or lost in any way. When, there, when only one of the alleles were lost, the mice remained fertile. While there's no direct evidence of this happening in humans for now, it's possible that fertility issues in humans could be caused by issues with the cleaving of the PRM2 proteins at times. And the team is currently looking into if this is actually the case. Scholl says, and I quote, There are only a few research groups that analyze the roles of protamines in hypercondensation. We are the only laboratory in the world to date that has succeeded in generation and breeding of both PRM1 and PRM2 deficient mice lines, which are now used to study the role of the proteins in spermatogenesis. Ooh, big word to end off this topic. Spermatogenesis is the process of creating sperm. And where the life of the sperm starts, this topic ends. Now, if you're like me, and you spend a lot of time on that darn phone, or that darn computer machine, or that darn TV, or that darn Samsung smart fridge, you probably play a lot of video games. Rhythm games, shooter games, racing games, Minecraft, 
The list goes on and on. Video gaming gets a bad rap when it comes to physical and mental health effects, and sitting for hours on end? Not a very good thing for us. And the cherry on top? The media constantly pushes the message that video games cause violence. Don't you just hate it when you build a castle in Minecraft and then suddenly have the urge to go kill the president of Latvia? <laughs> so relatable. But games are so violent! Kids these days don't know how to read a book! Okay, Boomer, we'll, we'll get into that. Yes, when overdone, video games have downsides. But in moderation, a few hours playing video games can increase brain activity and, more specifically, can boost cognitive skills needed for decision making for all of life's important decisions, such as which boba tea place should I order from? One's cheaper, but one uses better quality ingredients. Researchers suggest that video games can be used as a way of training quick decision making, which could maybe help with brains that have suffered neural damage. Neuroscientist Mukesh Damala said, quote, Video games are played by the overwhelming majority of our youth more than three hours every week, but the beneficial effects on decision-making abilities and the brain are not exactly known. Our work provides some answers on that." End quote. FMRI, or Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, was used to observe and measure the neural activity in 47 college-age participants, with that number consisting of 28 people who played video games on a regular basis, and 19 people who didn't and those who played mostly played real-time strategy games and team-styled arena games, and first-person shooters. The volunteers were then directed to press buttons in response to the direction that a series of dots was moving on a screen right in front of them. Regular video gamers were not just faster, but also more accurate in their response, and the resulting scans showed that there was also more enhanced activity in certain parts of their brains, such as the right lingual gyrus, the left thalamus, and the right supplementary motor area. All the regions thought to be a part of cognitive processing and producing motor responses to visual inputs, meaning that they tended to have better hand-eye coordination. Damala and fellow researcher Tim Jordan wrote in their paper, quote, These results indicate that Video game playing potentially enhances several of the sub-processes for sensation, perception, and mapping to action to improve decision-making skills. And Jordan has personal experience in the area. When he was the ripe age of five and had one eye weaker than the other, he took part in a study where he was asked to cover his good eye and play video games using only his weak eye in order to strengthen visual processing in said weaker eye. And this training worked. Jordan went from being legally blind in one eye to having the eyesight to tolerate games like lacrosse and paintball. And this sort of training could eventually be used to strengthen sensory motor uh, decision making too, while the link between video gaming and cognitive ability is old news. With, uh, with each different piece of research, we get closer to finding out how we may be able to utilize the positive effects of video games. Damala says, quote, Video game playing can effectively be used for training. For example, decision-making efficiency training and therapeutic interventions, once the relevant brain networks are identified." End quote. Now, you might be thinking about that video games cause violence argument. While not related to all this stuff, I still want to talk about it to debunk boomer arguments. Does that make me a monster? Ever since video games popped into existence, parents have gone mad with fear across the globe. The National Safety Council panicked so hard over the 1976 arcade game Death Race by calling these harmless little pixels sick, sick, sick. And in the 90s, politicians had a total freakout over Mortal Kombat. And this was before the game had good enough graphics to show Ermac ripping someone in half with telekinetic powers. In fact, 
Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman claimed that the game was teaching kids to, and I quote, enjoy inflicting the most gruesome forms of cruelty imaginable, end quote. But even with all this repeated panic over the years, there's still no actual evidence showing a correlation between video games and violent crimes. If anything, since video game sales spiked, violent crime rates have actually started to go down, and countries where video games are popular have even lower rates of violent crimes. Take Japan. They play more games than Americans do, and yet they have 96 times less gun murders. And despite this lazy video games cause violence narrative, numerous studies, one of which being an analysis from the Secret Service, have shown that school shooters play lower amounts of video violent video games than their peers. Those studies have shown that violent video games can cause a slight and TEMPORARY increase in aggressive and violent thoughts and behavior. Those studies are actually quite weak because they didn't actually measure what an average person would label as aggression. One study just measured whether or not people who played video games were more likely to feed opponents hot sauce. The most violent of violent crimes, am I right? Oh, yes. And even if these studies had tested for real-world acts of aggression, the change in behavior measured was infinitesimal. Only 2% on average, actually. Other studies showed a similar effect from racing games and real-life sports. We all know that person who goes crazy every time you beat them at foosball. To quote what video game researcher Patrick Markey in the college humor show Adam Ruins Everything said, Blaming video games for real-world violence really took off after the Columbine shooting, and it was an understandable mistake, because we all desperately wanted some reason why someone would commit such a horrific act of violence. But today we know, video games aren't actually what's to blame. And despite that, politicians across the globe still see video games as a convenient scapegoat. As recently as the Parkland tragedy from 2018, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, said, and I quote, I'm hearing more and more people say the level of violence on video games is really shaping young people's thoughts. And reporters from the media parrot this lazy narrative like an African Gary Gray parrot. After the Newtown school shooting, it was publicly reported that the, school, the, that the shooter played video games. You want to know what his favorite game, which he played for up to 10 hours a day, was? Dance Dance Revolution. So, it's just the fact that it's easier to blame it on video games than to take care of societal problems that actually affect rates of violent crimes. Things such as education, employment, or lack thereof, stigma against seeking treatment for mental health, and in some cases, access to guns. So, we're spending valuable time and money that could be used on more useful things, trying to find a link between violence and video games which is non-existent. To paraphrase Adam Conover, also from Adam Ruins Everything, Banning and scapegoating violent video games doesn't protect our kids, it's just a distraction from what we really need to do to keep people safe. So, we all know that one person who doesn't trust science, and thinks that vaccines will give them autism, the Rona pandemic isn't real, climate change is a hoax, or thinks that the Earth is flat. And the governments have been lying to us. Or all of them. If you're one of those all or all of them people, I feel sorry for you. See, distrust in science is a huge problem. Right now, it's directly leading to people's deaths. See, most of the misinformation these days is intentional and organized, called disinformation. Where misinformation is, is incorrect or misleading, disinformation is, is deliberately meant to trick people. And research has found that lies appear to spread faster than the truth, and often tend to stick longer than the truth. Thankfully, a psychologist named Aviva Philip Muller and colleagues looked into the scientific literature on persuasion and communication to find a cohesive and to-date sketch of how to take care of this problem. 
See, the biggest myth about communicating science to other people is that by presenting them with knowledge, they'll act according to that information. This is called the information deficit model, and is the way we communicate in this example. But because of the recent COVID pandemic and climate crisis, we have extensive examples of how this often doesn't work. Ohio State psychologist Richard Petty said, and I quote, Vaccinations used to be a standard thing that everyone accepted, but there have been a few developments in recent years that have made it easier to persuade people against the scientific consensus on vaccinations and other issues, end quote. And while that might be hard for a few of us to process, people have numerous legitimate reasons for their distrust in science. For one, many industries are helping this distrust in science fester by hijacking scientific credentials, using vaguely science sounding claims to gain clout and make profit. Um, pharmaceutical companies have definitely given us plenty of reasons not to trust them. And what's more, science isn't always right. Sometimes people mess up. Maybe they subtracted in their equations when they had to divide. And large, fra uh, large factions of, of the media are fueling feelings against the quote-unquote elitist experts and re reinforcing anti-science views. All of this conflict, doubt, and info overload is eating at people's trust in, sci in scientists. And those responsible for conveying scientific information to the public, like the media and government officials, and me, are starting to fare worse on their trust scales. This distrust in the source of information is one of the four barriers to accepting science that Philip Muller and colleagues have identified in their review. When information clashes with a person's core beliefs, challenges the group that they identify with, or doesn't match their learning style are the other three barriers highlighted by the team. Richard Petty says, quote, What all four of these bases have in common is they reveal what happens when scientific information conflicts with what people already think of their style, uh, uh, of, their style of thought. End quote. So let's go over these four bases. First one, distrust in information source. As I said before, the lack of trust in the information source has come up repeatedly as one of the main reasons people just don't accept scientific information. Legitimate and strong scientific debates can also confuse people who aren't familiar with the scientific processes, which further damages trust when it gets released to the public. In order to combat these trust issues people have, researchers suggest highlighting the shared nature of science and putting more emphasis on the wider and more pro-social goals of research. The team explains that honestly acknowledging other people's positions and any downsides in your own, instead of brushing them away, can go a long way to better establish trust. Philip Muller said, and I quote, pro-science messages can acknowledge that there are valid concerns on the other side, but explain why the, but explain why the scientific position is preferable. The second obstacle is called tribal loyalty. The way thinking is wired as a social species such as our own makes us very exposed to, at times, blindly believing those we identify with as a part of our own cultural group, no matter the level of education we've had. And this is a phenomenon called cultural cognition. Philip Muller and colleagues uh, wrote, quote, Work on cultural cognition has highlighted how people contort themselves, their uh, contort scientific findings to fit with values that matter to their cultural identities. Social media platforms like Facebook provide customized news feeds. That means conservatives and liberals can get highly varied information. End quote. Curated selections of information, courtesy of Zark Muckerberg himself. <laughs>
Political polarization and social media have gone hand-in-hand hand to enhance this cultural cognition phenomenon. As an example, conservatives are more likely to believe scientists that appear on Fox News, and liberals are more likely to trust CNN. Hey, I have some people in my family who only trust Fox News. I'm not naming any names, you know who you are! In order to combat this, we need to find some kind of common ground, and create information that's made for, uh, made for specific target audiences, and work together with communities holding anti-science views, including people traditionally marginalized by science. The third obstacle is when information goes against personal beliefs. Internal conflicts by, uh, created by information that conflicts with our social or personal beliefs like morals or religion, can lead to logical fallacies and cognitive biases like cognitive dissonance. Scientific information can be difficult for some people to process, and some people would more easily reject the evidence than just accept information that suggests that they might be wrong. This, inclina this inclination is completely understandable, and scientists should be poised to empathize. Those two last sentences were just me paraphrasing what the team wrote in their paper. Key strategies to counter this could include showing an understanding of the person's, uh, the other person's viewpoint. Richard Petty says, quote, People get their defenses up if they think they're being attacked, or that you're so different from them that you can't be credible. Find some places where you agree and work from there. Counterintuitively, increasing someone's general specific literacy can backfire because it provides the skill to support their, uh, to, to support their pre-existing beliefs. And increasing scientific reasoning and media literacy skills, pre-bunking or inoculating people against misinformation are suggested instead. As is articulating information in line with what matter to people you're speaking to and using relatable personal experiences. And the final barrier is when information isn't being presented in the correct learning style. This is the most straightforward of these four bases. A simple discrepancy in how information is being presented and the style best suited to the audience. This may include things like the preference between abstract and concrete information or being promotion or prevention focused. Philip Muller and the team suggest making use of a few tacks uh, of the same tactics that anti-science forces have employed. Like the technology and advertising industry, researchers should be using metadata to better target messaging based on personal online habits from people's profiles. While the current level of public acceptance of research is disappointing and may cause some of you to gain a respect for Thanos, good news is that even though the trust in scientists has fallen, it's still decently high in compared to other information authorities. While we as a species pride ourselves on being logical creatures, humans are animals with messy minds and uh, that are just as controlled by social alliances, emotions, and instincts as logic. Those involved with science, be it as supporters or practitioners, don't need, uh, need to understand and account for this. Luckily for me, I don't have the problem with losing trust in them. After all, I am a part of a very famous, totally not tiny science podcast. And on that note, that'll about wrap it up for this week's episode. Thank you for coming, I'm sure you can see yourself out, just down the hall to the left. This is the Mind Blown Podcast. We'll see you next week, folks.